The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. It's been said that in the pursuit of scientific proof of the reality of NDEs, veridical evidence, evidence of knowledge gained while the body is, say, lying dead in cardiac arrest, is the most convincing. And likewise, for Christians who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, nothing offers more convincing physical evidence than the artifact known as the Shroud of Turin, the burial cloth that appears to contain the image of Jesus' body at the moment of resurrection. Our guest today, Joseph Marino, is a former Benedictine monk who has been studying the Shroud of Turin since 1977. He and his late wife, Sue Benford, presented a paper at the Sedone 2000 World uh, Congress in Orvieto, Italy, hypothesizing that the reason that the 1988 carbon-14 dating of the Shroud resulted in a date range of, of the Middle Ages, 1260 to 1390, um, for the cloth was because of a 16th century repair in the sample area. As one example of how controversial a subject this became, Raymond Rogers, one of the scientists from the Shroud of Turin Research product, Project, who studied the Shroud in 1978, thought their hypothesis was nonsense at first, but later concluded that Benford and Marino were probably correct, and other scientists have independently verified Rogers' findings. Um, Joe Marino's book, Wrapped Up in the Shroud, is a chronicle of uh, his longtime study of the of this enigmatic cloth. And to uh, quote Amazon, his book, quote, recounts strange, humorous, and at times mystical events surrounding uh, Marino's involvement and include, includes Joe and Sue's tragic, touching love story. Joe, welcome to NDE Radio. Thanks. I I um, appreciate you having me on your show. Well, I'm glad you uh, glad you found our uh, my earlier conversation with uh, Father Walton about this very subject, and uh, and that that you got in touch with me. This is uh, this is going to be terrific, um, Joe. Since I mentioned it in the introduction, let's begin with how you became involved in this lifetime study, and uh, tell us about your own mystical experiences that were involved in helping convince you that the shroud is authentic. Well, um, I was born and raised Catholic, and um, in my late teens and early 20s, um, I had become agnostic, and um, I went two years to college and wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I I quit school and got a job with the federal government, and um, I kind of only read, I was kind of sick of ac- academic stuff, so once I quit my job, I just, for about three or four years, I think I only read the sports page in the comics. <laughs> and um, <laughs> after a while, I thought, you know, i got to do something a little more significant than this. And um, so I started reading um, religion, you know, things on religion, any really any religion, not just Christianity and philosophy. And um, it was... Um, spring of 1977, I went to a bookstore and, and saw a book uh, in the religion section called um, The Fifth Gospel, and it had a, a picture of the 
the face from the shroud, the uh, the image that you see on the on the negative, which looks lifelike, and it said, "Is this the face of Jesus Christ?" And I thought, "Well, this looks like interesting reading." I had never heard of the shroud, um, even though I was raised Catholic. Of course, we you you hear of things like Veronica's veil and stuff like that, but I had not not actually heard of the shroud. And I bought the book and um, read it in one sitting. It was just fascinating, and that was the year before the about 40 American scientists went over to Italy to study it in 1978 um, in conjunction with a exposition that 3,300,000 people saw. And, you know, I, I was pretty open-minded at the time since I wasn't uh, an adherent to any religion or anything. Um, and... The evidence seemed convincing to me that it was could be and probably was the authentic burial cloth of, of Jesus of Nazareth. So I started, I looked at the bibliography and uh, started collecting articles, and then I contacted the Holy Shroud Guild in New York State and um, got some slides and started corresponding with um, researchers and scientists. And um, it actually kind of got me back into my original faith, and I ended up joining um, a monastery in 1980. And um, I put together some slides for a lecture and started lecturing. Was pretty nervous at first, but I was so into the, you know, the subject matter, I kind of forgot about my nervousness and was just able to give the data. And um, I um, just, you know, kind of really, as I do now, try to keep up to the minute. I was just, it's just a, fa- a subject that grabbed me from the very beginning and has never let go. And uh, one of my first mystical experiences was, um, gosh, this is over 35 years ago, but it's still as fresh in my mind as if it happened yesterday. So I was starting to collect all the books I could get on the Shroud, etc., and um I had a small booklet called um, The Holy Shroud and Four Visions, and it recounted the visions that um, four nuns had over in history uh, about the shroud. And I had actually lost the booklet, um, but it was a condensed version of a bigger book that I was able to order, um, and I knew the bigger book was coming, so I wasn't that concerned that I couldn't find the booklet. So along the lines, uh, I uh, I was actually given what what was supposed to be a shroud relic, an authentic shroud relic. Turns out later it was actually only part of the, um, the kind of a covering cloth, and not the real shroud itself. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I thought it was uh, authentic. And um, a nephew of mine had a brain tumor, and um, I was going to take the relic to the hospital and and touch it to his head. So the day I was going to go, I was in my cell in the monastery and kind of thinking about the theology of relics um, affecting cures, which, of course, is in the realm of of mystical theology. And as I was thinking of that, it just kind of reminded me of the lost booklet, because that's, you know, also mystical theology, the, the visions that the nuns had. And at the precise moment I thought of the lost booklet 
I heard a noise behind me, and I turned around, and the booklet, which I had no idea where it was, literally hit on the floor behind my back. I heard yeah. it. I heard it hit the ground. <laughs> and I, <laughs> wow. I hadn't taped it to the ceiling, uh, <laughs> so I have no rational explanation of where that you know where it came from. But I think it was just God's way of saying, "Yeah, mystical theology is valid." Um, so that was one, one event. And then another one, uh, I went to my first shroud conference in 1986 and met some of the scientists in person for the first time and was very excited. And, uh, there were seven speakers and five of them thought that you could not explain the shroud and two of them, uh, believed it was a fake. And one of them was, uh, Dr. Walter McCrone, who, who had been saying since 1980 he thought the shroud was a painting, even though his findings disagreed with uh, all of the STIRP team members. Um, so when the conference was over, um, an AP story came out, and it, it featured McCrone's findings, saying it was a painting, and it made it look like this was a new revelation, when in fact he had been saying it for six years already at that point. And I was really upset with the way that the story was covered because five of the seven thought, you know, thought it was probably authentic. So when I got back to St. Louis, um, I was, I, I was working in the school that the monastery ran and I was busy all day, but all I had in my mind was, um, getting to my room and writing a letter to the editor explaining the situation and complaining about the way the story was covered. So finally, the school day ended, and I'm literally rushing to my room to write this letter down. And I I had this experience that unless you've had one of these, it's almost hard to explain. And I later found out it's called a locution, L-O-C-U-T-I-O-N. Mm-hmm. And what it, a locution is sort of like a an inner voice that you hear that you know is from outside of you. So um, one of my jobs, sort of unofficial jobs at the monastery was picking up trash. And I wasn't assigned it, but I did it because, you know, the, the campus got very littered and it drove me nuts to see trash run all around. So I regularly picked up trash. Um, and as I'm rushing to my room with, you know, one track mind about writing this letter, I hear an inner voice say, go pick up trash. And I was just really startled by this. Like, I'm not saying this to myself. Somebody or some, somebody's telling me this. And it was so strong and insistent. I thought, you know what? I'm not going to ignore this. The last thing on earth I want to do right now is go pick up trash. But I think I better go pick up trash. So I spent a good hour picking up trash, and then I'm literally ready to rush back to the monastery again. I was in one of the parking lots of the, of the near the church, and I hear a car door, and I turned around, and it was um, the executive vice president of the local CBS affiliate um, radio, Camel X Radio in St. Louis, which was a 100,000-watt uh, station, very powerful. You can hear, on a good night, you can hear it in Canada. Mm. And... Um, I, I knew the gentleman kind of briefly, uh, 
from him coming to the church. And I said, oh, hello, Mr. Highland. Did you see the article on the Shroud in the paper this morning? It was totally, you know, misleading. And he said, uh, well, I heard about it, but I haven't read it. He says, oh, I'll tell you what. He says, uh, call John Angelides at the station and um, let's do an interview with you on the, the world of religion, which was uh, a program that was done in St. Louis, but then broadcast nationally. So um, called the guy the next day and we set something up. I went down to the studio and um, I actually ended up debating Walter McCrone on the radio. <laughs> and I was a little nervous because I had never done any radio or TV at that point, And it was a world microscopist. And um, the moderator told me he was not that impressed with um, McCrone's arguments. And so I felt like I at least held my own. So the fact that um, I heard this voice tell me to go pick up trash, and as a result of that, I ended up on uh, a national program. Wow. says to me that, that that was orchestrated. So those are kind of the two of the the bigger ones. And then uh, just a little background on Sue. Sue would, would get some um, uh, it's what I would call spiritual insights often. And um, at one point we were trying to track down a missing shroud sample, um, you know, after that Ray Rogers had had, but um, after he died, uh, it wasn't known where the sample was. And at one point, you know, she got one of her insights and she says, somebody named Bob has it. And she had, you know, she has no, had no reason to say that other than, you know, there was no rational way she could have known that. And as it turns out, <clears throat> Barry Schwartz, uh, the documenting photographer who runs uh, the, the big Shroud website, Shroud.com. Shroud.com, yes. Yeah. Um, he went through, he got Ray Rogers' computer and um, got some information, and he called Los Alamos National Laboratories, where Ray Rogers used to work, and he discovered that the sample um, had been given to Robert Villarreal, and um, Sue had no way of knowing that, but she said, somebody named Bob has it. So um, even my life with Sue was interesting with <clears throat> somebody with those capabilities. And it, it was just interesting the the year we corresponded um, before I left the monastery, I would get weird things happen sometimes two or three times a day, which uh, is something called synchronicities, which are mm -hmm. kind of like meaningful coincidences where I'd, I'd be thinking something in my head, and then somebody would say something that they had no idea what I was thinking, but their answer would be a direct reply or a solution to what I'm thinking. And um, stuff like that happened, like like I say, almost every day, sometimes two, three times a day for a year. And so um, Sue and I, you know, felt like we were uh, really called together to do that work. And we, in fact, even though I was somewhat established as a shroud researcher, um, we would have never been able to do the research that we did had we not literally gotten together. Hmm. Now, she called you originally because of the shroud, didn't she? At That's least correct. I got that, I got that impression. Yeah. She got in touch with you. Uh, you were you were still in the monastery at that time? That is, 
That's right. Talk about something that was meant to be. That's uh, yeah. That's a powerful, uh, not a coincidence at all, that you two yeah, were interested in the shroud. Yeah, she called uh, some other researchers first, who who basically kind of said they didn't didn't have time to to deal with her, but they gave her they gave her my name, and she called me, mm-hmm. and um, one thing led to another another, and um, I ended up. Um, leaving the monastery and <clears throat> going out to her home in Columbus, Ohio in, in 1998. Yeah. God had another assignment for you, it sounds like. Yeah. Joe, um, apparently, I'd, I'd like to talk a little about the Shroud itself at this point. And apparently little is known about the early history of the Shroud. Um, one report I read s- uh, stated that the features of Christ, as they are generally accepted today, date from uh, 525 A.D., when the shroud was found in the ruins of the Westgate House of Odessa, the result of a right. disastrous flood that de- devastated much of the city. Um, and then it says, before that date, his image was generally portrayed uh, as that of a Hellenistic young man, notably uh, to be seen in various sar- sarcophagi on the Roman per- of the Roman period in the Vatican museums. But back in 1987, I was... Um, I was in Tbilisi, Georgia, and I went to an icon museum there. Uh, what was purportedly a fourth century painting of Jesus' face, and it was in the traditional style of Jesus. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if uh, the shroud had been seen before that, and people had uh, copied the. F- what do you know, What do you know about that early history? Um, that's pretty accurate. The way you displayed it, that's what most of the um, shroud historians believe. Now, I think the first um, depiction of, of Jesus in the catacombs was about, I think, 250 A.D., and mm-hmm. that was somewhat more like the traditional um, representation rather than the Roman ones. So of course, a lot just depends on the, the context. The uh, Jews and Christians, or really, I guess the Christians, because the Jews wouldn't, wouldn't do depictions, the mm-hmm. Christians would have... Um, done more of a representation the way they thought it, rather than a strictly Roman one. Um, whereas non-Christians and Romans and stuff would probably would tend to depict them in the Roman style. Um, right. So, you know, the early history is, is a little murky. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a few um, representations before the fifth, you know, the sixth century, where it it, it looks um, a little like the traditional representation, but you just have to kind of remember, you know, there there was no internet in those days, and and communication was slow, and and uh, of course the the shroud was probably hidden for hundreds of years, so there wasn't a lot of um, knowledge about what it looked like, or you know, seeing other pictures. Um, to be able to base it on. So there's mm-hmm. going to be some word of mouth and stuff like that. But generally, it is true that just get to after like 544 when it was supposedly discovered after the flood in Odessa from 525, most of the representations um, begin to look like the shroud face. And in fact, uh, there was a researcher named Paul Vignon in the early 1900s that uh, kind of cataloged something like 15 different characteristics um, 
on the shroud face that he noted on, on Byzantine icons from the uh, like the sixth through the twelfth centuries. Mm. Then in uh, I guess twelve oh four or thereabouts, the Crusaders sacked Constantinople, and uh, the Knights Templar were part of that group, and they could very well have been the ones that brought uh, the shroud back to Europe. Um, I know uh, Ian Wilson wrote the Shroud of Turin Burial Cloth of Jesus, and he, he made the claim that the Templars worshipped the picture of the face of Jesus on the shroud. Uh, I guess they called it the Mandelian. Um, if, yeah, it, it had become known as the Mandelian in 944 when the image of Edessa was, was brought there. Uh, to Constantinople, and then um, it was uh, became known as the Mendelian at that point, and as you said, was was stolen in 1204 in the, in the um, uh, Fourth Crusade, and then it kind of disappeared for about 150 years. Um, there's a Italian historian; uh, oh, she's a Vatican archivist named uh, Barbara Frale. Um, found a, a document recently that, that does seem to indicate that the Templars uh, seem to be worshipping some some head on a cloth. So it's very likely that the uh, Templars did have it in that, uh, that period between 1204 and when it uh, publicly surfaces around 1355 in Loray, France. Mm. And then there was a report that, I don't know if it was a, a priest or a bishop from the Middle Ages sometime said that uh, he thought the shroud was a fake and that he'd found the artist who'd made it and the artist had confessed that he'd made it and so forth. Um, but after that, the Catholic Church has always thought it to be authentic up until recently. So what, what's the story with that? Well, of course, one has to remember the belief in a relic is never, um, a dog, you know, something that's required for Catholics or anything. It's never a dogma of faith. Basically, they, <clears throat> the church lets you venerate an object as long as there is no, you know, significant evidence that it's a fake. Mm-hmm. And uh, although many popes have stated um, personally that they believe that the shroud is authentic, it's, it's never a dogma. Um, so the, the, the fact that they're still exhibiting it after the carbon-14 test of 1988 uh, shows that they don't believe that that evidence is concrete, that it's a fake. Uh, so it's, it's really left up to the individual um, if they want to believe it's authentic or not, but it it'll, would never be required. Mm. Now, there seems, besides the carbon-14 thing, which we'll get into in, in detail, um, there are other things that they've said uh, authenticate the shroud. One is the weave and the cloth is... is uh, appropriate to to the place and time of Jesus' uh, death, uh, that they found pollen, traces of pollen from Middle Eastern plants. And um, the fact, uh, too, and I think it was Schwartz that said that the bilirubin in the blood, which is generated by by uh, torture and extreme pain and, and uh, anxiety, I guess, in the, in the victim, the blood stays red, and the blood did stay red on the cloth. Which was an indication that the, that this really had been a someone who'd been tortured, it wasn't just an artistic rendering. That's correct, and of course, 
you know, unless you're a blood expert or a medical expert, who's going to know that? And certainly a, a 14th century forger would, would know something like that. And, and he would, ha- he would have had been hundreds of years ahead of his time in, um, medical knowledge and stuff. Um, mm. one of, one of my original slides that I ought to get digitized sometimes, I've got a diagram of, um, in the 17th century, a kind of a medical diagram and it's, it's cartoonish. I mean, it's, it's so primitive and, um, and that's the 17th century. So mm. it, it's amazing that it, it really, I find it impossible to believe that somebody in the 14th century knew enough medicine to incorporate, you know, venous blood flows, arterial blood flows. Um, and I mean, he would have had to have been an expert in, in Roman crucifixion. You know, the wounds match the Roman flagrum. The crown of thorns match uh, a kind of thorn can be found in Israel. Um, the spear wound matches a Roman lancia at the time. I mean, there is just so much evidence uh, pointing toward authenticity. And that bishop in 1389 that said he he found the um, artist, I think it's very possible he could be referring to a, a copy uh, that was made at the time. Um, ah, right. That would explain and, that. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing of, you know, permissions and stuff. One of the, Geoffrey de Charny had gone over the bishop's head to, to get the, the cloth uh, exhibited and stuff, and then, you know, the bishops got upset about that, and and they were each trying to raise, get money for their churches and whatnot. So you can't really take that at face value uh, that he said, uh, you know, that he knew the, who, who the artist was. I mean, you, you can find middle medieval documents that say the the world is flat, but that doesn't mean it's true, you know. <laughs> Plus the fact that they don't even know how an artist would have rendered this thing. They don't have a, I mean, it's not paint, it's not, uh, no. it, it, it's not a photo. They didn't have photography back then, and they couldn't do right. it photographically anyway. Right. And the, I think the biggest, one of the biggest indications scientifically that the um, image can't be duplicated is that some Italian scientists in Italy in around 2011 used the ultraviolet eczema laser and were, were able to come fairly close to the color and penetration of the shroud on a, on a piece of linen um, using a, a 2 to 5 billion watts uh, in 140 billion of a second. Now, if you extrapolate... They said to do a whole front and back image, you would need billions and billions of what there isn't enough power to do that even today. Um, it, it, it just the, the the idea of an artist doing it is really ludicrous. If if you really get down to it and, and do all the study um, of the different aspects of of the intricacy of the image. So that being the case, why do you suppose that uh, so many people were disillusioned with this uh, carbon-14 test that they did? I mean, there's so much more evidence uh, of a different nature than the carbon-14 that that seems to prove the authenticity of the shroud. So are you, you're asking why why so much stock is put into that? Yes. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, well, that's a complicated story, too. Um, <laughs> I think the three labs that did the test, I think they were very interested in promoting their C14 method. Um, and the shroud was just the perfect vehicle to do that. Uh-huh. And originally, there were supposed to be more than three labs. There were going to be like seven labs. Mm-hmm. And then it was reduced to three. And they kind of complained a little bit, but the scientific advisor to the Cardinal said, well, to the three labs that were left, well, if you don't want to do it, we'll get, you know, other labs to do it. And they kind of clammed up and said, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll do it. <laughs> the carbon-14 industry just kind of exploded after that. I mean, it's like a dive for billion or uh, trillion dollar industry now. So and, it was a- um, it was a way to market a scientific technique more than it was a, a genuine exploration of the shroud. Oh, I think, yeah, the, the, the search for the truth of the shroud was really secondary. I did, in 2016, I did a three-part, 75-page article called The Politics of the Radiocarbon Dating of the Torn Shroud. Mm-hmm. And if you just look at all, you know, there was just backstabbing, egos. I think most of the people involved were... were we're not concerned about really finding out the truth about the shroud. It was really about stature, power, ego, money, and that sort human, of thing. Human nature, in other words. Joe, yeah. we are out of out of time, but this is such a fascinating subject. We will continue this uh, next week. Um, so thank you for now, Joe Marino, uh, for sharing your story up to this point. And uh, we hope that listeners will go out and uh, find your book between now and next Monday. Uh, it's the book is titled Wrapped Up in the Shroud, Chronicle of a Passion. If you'd like to listen again to this show or any of our past shows, just go to our website at NDE Radio uh, for information on IONS and the upcoming IONS conference in Valley Forge, PA. Check out that website at IANDS.org. And join us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio with Joe Marino. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.